you are welcome to here on the ground at www.theelephant.info. So as I told you, my name is Ducky. I work with the Heinrich Paul Foundation. Mr. Harvey, the first question I have for you, what are your thoughts on the curfew and how it has been enforced so far by the police? Now, the, the curfew in my thoughts is unconstitutional. The reason why I say it's unconstitutional is because a curfew is only used to combat crime in a particular zone or in a particular area of the country. What ideally the government ought to have done was to make use of the Public Health Act, which gives the government vast powers to cordon off an area, to declare an area as prone to infection, to confine individuals suspected of having a contracted communicable disease, and forcibly test them and give them medication. But if you look at the manner in which this has been done, especially its enforcement by the police, it almost looks like they are fighting a crime, yet COVID-19 is not a crime, it's a health pandemic. The nearest that, that could have come to a forum that the government ought to have used was an emergency. And under Article 58 of the Constitution, a health pandemic can be classified as an emergency mm -hmm. so that the government can use the 14 period required under the Constitution to take whatever action that they have taken in the manner that they took through the curfew. But overall, the general idea of containing the spread of COVID was a noble idea. It's only that it was approached from a wrong legal framework. So you moved to the court to challenge the curfew? Yes. Could you explain why you took this legal path? Several reasons. One, for good order, because we don't want a bad precedent to be set in the future where the president can decree a curfew. In actual fact, there are no legal justifications to do that. So for good order and for good governance. Because under Article 10 of the Constitution, everybody enforcing the law, everybody formulating and enforcing policy is required to comply with the Constitution. So the president, as a state officer, the cabinet secretaries who work under him and the inspector general of police are required to comply with the constitution. Number two, within two days of declaration of the curfew, we had seen wanton abuse of fundamental human rights and freedoms. A pregnant woman on her way to hospital was assaulted. The border rider who was ferrying her to hospital was killed. Women and other traders in marketplaces were assaulted. Truck drivers delivering food ordered out of their vehicles and beaten. And our point is this, even if it is a curfew, there is a penalty set out in the Public Order Act Section 8 as to what is the punishment for contravention of a curfew. It's not corporal punishment. And then number three, the reason as to why we went to court, we wanted guidelines formulated so that we have a clarity of how the government is containing this uh, pandemic. So that anybody suspected to have uh, contracted the pandemic can be dealt with in accordance with those guidelines. We don't want a situation where people are lumped together in a small hotel like Pride Inn. Mm -hmm. They're deprived of their passport. They, they don't have access to food. They're forced to pay an exorbitant uh, 
amount of money to stay in that hotel. Yet it's not their making. And ideally, if the government was to enforce this measure under the Public Health Act, it will be their responsibility to cater for the costs of all this. But when they take you to a five-star hotel and tell you they have quarantined you there, and you have to pay, to pay a daily boarding fee of 20000 or 30000 then that is a violation of one's right to movement. Mm. Part of the petition also in court is to compel the CS to provide in-depth information on how the country is prepared to tackle the COVID-19. Why do you think yes. it's crucial that the public is informed about the measures the country is taking to deal with the coronavirus? It's crucial for several reasons. Remember, at the onset, the CS Health indicated that uh, you don't need to go to a hospital for you to be tested. It won't be a random walk-in, walk-out test. Yet, at the same point in time, we are told if we know or we come to discover that you had contact with somebody who had been infected, we'll come and... What are the guidelines? Do you understand? You and I, as a matter of general good health concern, we'll want to be sure that we are negative. I can't walk into a Gahan hospital or Nairobi hospital and say that I want to be tested. I must be given a directive by the Ministry of Health before I'm tested. Yes, the kids are expensive, but there are people who will want certainty. And for general good public order, we are better placed to combat this pandemic if we know which health facility will attend to me in the event that I have the symptoms. Uh, I'm feeling as if they are bringing me down. Where can I take a loved one? For how long should I wait for the test? What are the clarity of the manifestations of the symptoms, the disease? We don't know. If even me, as, as I stand here, I, I don't know what this thing is. Nobody has a clue. <laughs> we are all in the dark yeah. here. We, we're all in the dark. Yes. Um, you've already also mentioned somehow the brutalities of our police. So we've seen cases of police officers using excessive force on Kenyans while enforcing this curfew. And we've also seen the same trend in the past during protests, during elections. So do you, in your view, see this as a systemic issue within the Kenya police? Or can we talk of a few rogue police officers in the sector? No, it is a systemic issue. And I'll cascade it from my top down. Look, you saw Charles Owino, the police spokesperson, come on TV and justify the actions of the police. So if a senior commander of the police can justify these actions, if you can see clips of officers in a land cruiser saying that Look, sorry to say, but most of these policemen are young men of them are young women. I, they, they don't really seem to understand the magnitude of the problem they're dealing with. Compare them with the police officers in the United States. Compare them with the police officers in the UK. Some of them even enforce the law with a body camera so that there is accountability from the control center. What are the guidelines that have been given to these police officers when they are deployed in a land cruiser? at night with batons, with AK-47 assault rifles. They don't know what they're going to do. Because you see, the mentality of a Kenyan policeman is brute force. And we see that even in their senior commanders. 
We see that in the cabinet secretary in charge of interior, despite the fact that he's an extremely learned person. We see that in the inspector general of the police. They don't want to account. And when we went to court yesterday, there was an order that had been made that the inspector general of police should give the guidelines on how these things are supposed to be done. What did they do? They went around it. They said the guidelines are in the police act. No, that is not how responsibility is handled in a constitutional democracy. Because these are very serious offices that these senior policemen hold. And if you look at it from that perspective, you now realize why the policeman or woman on the ground will derive pleasure in beating a pregnant woman who's going to hospital. Derive pleasure in commandeering somebody who's driving a truck full of, of, of food or medicament to come out and kill that person. I mean, it is not a matter of public order. This is a matter of public health. Police do not have an understanding when it comes to enforcement of public health. And the court actually gave an order for the guidelines to be published in the newspapers. Yes, the, the court had given an order for the guidelines to be published in the newspapers. But because the police complained that they already have those guidelines in the police act, yesterday an order was made that Kenya Human Rights Commission, LSK, formulate what, in our opinion, we think are the yardsticks that should govern the conduct of the police in the enforcement of this country. So we'll formulate basic guidelines, standards, and uh, principles, and then we'll file them in court in three days. And so while talking about the police killings and use of the excessive force, a 13-year-old was killed in Kiamaiko. And late last year, we saw another baby shot by the police, which means children also are not an exemption. And so are the young men from the informal uh, settlements that are killed every now and then. From a legal point of view, what can be done to clean up the police service in Kenya now that we know it is a systemic issue that is even top-down? Look, this may look very unorthodox, but I think unless police are pursuing an armed criminal, it is my humble view that the policemen should not be allowed to contain the public with firearms. And we've seen this in other countries. You don't need a firearm maintain order uh, in a crowd. It is not prudent for them to be given firearms, assault uh, weapons. Mm-hmm. Like an AK-47 is an auto assault rifle. If you point it at the balcony, you're, you're most likely to decimate a minimum of 36 people in one discharge. So they don't need an assault rifle. There are those electronic devices that are used by policemen in developed countries. Where if you become unruly, they, they point them at you. But then they disable you for a few minutes. But the history of the Kenyan police is replete with many instances of uh, justified uh, firearm discharge. So, so for that reason, going forward, I don't see the reason why the police should carry an assault rifle. In developed democracies, policemen don't carry assault rifles. They don't. So in case of the baby Gidinji, we saw that the court order um, ordered for an inquest despite the fact that the officers were known. Why would a court order an inquest when the culprit is actually known? Inquest has a, a legal uh, definition. Huh? So that if the death occurred and it cannot be ascertained who amongst 10 officers was responsible for pulling the trigger or for bungling somebody to death, a trial court, a trial court may not be the best forum 
for ascertaining liability. So an inquest will give you a direction as to who amongst a group of people were responsible for somebody's death. And then thereafter, the director of public prosecution can pick the file and identify those individuals and prosecute them. By law, IPOA has the mandate to investigate gross violations by police. We've seen of late that DCI is taking up investigations, uh, leading to two investigation files being taken to the DPP. Do you support these uh, parallel investigations, and uh, do you believe parallel investigations may hurt a case? Uh, look, what the DCI is doing is wrong, because in Kenya we cannot have an internal investigation mechanism insofar as police are concerned. Look, it's not in the realm of conjecture, but the fact of the matter is this. Policemen will always cover up for their own. And yeah. I can tell you this, amongst the legal fraternity, we know the case of the Willick money. By the time we put the DCI on the dock to explain what happened, three days had gone. And uh, we honestly believe the central command of the police knew who had killed this lawyer and where they had hidden his body. So, way forward, I poor needs to be empowered to investigate matters of this kind, so that uh, we have an independent, fast speed investigation where I poor deals with the file and forwards it to the director of public prosecution. The DCI should not get involved in matters of this kind. The most they can do is to facilitate. Uh, in fact, they need to be given uh, almost police powers, not just oversight. Okay, this is actually not part of the question, but I think it's interesting. Do you think actually IPOA has that clout or there's something lacking there? IPOA may not have the clout for several reasons. You're asking civilians to go and inve investigate armed policemen. The element of fear and limitations as to the scope of investigation is quite real. So that's why I've advocated for IPOA to be better empowered. I think they need to have the same status as the military police. Real-time action. Okay. Uh, you already mentioned a bit about Willy Kimani's case, and I have a question in regards to that. Why do cases of police brutality, especially police killings, take long in court? Like the Ruaraka OCS case took five years. And we've seen the case of four police officers in lawyer Willie Kimani and two others is now heading to its third year in court. What is LSK doing to reverse this? And how can victims of police brutality get justice faster? Look, this may sound very basic, but my point is this. These fellows took less than uh, one hour to kill a human being. Why should they be tried in one year? Why should they be tried even in a month? So. Way forward, we need to have legislation where we can cap the time within which trials can be undertaken. There was a member of parliament who was killed uh, in, in England, uh, I think sometime last year. Uh, the trial of uh, the people who were responsible for her, uh, for her death was conducted in less than two months. So I'll blame the judiciary for this. I'll also blame some of our colleagues for this. Because for there to be a delay of three years, then the defense counsel must be doing something towards that. But the ultimate responsibility on how fast a murder trial should be conducted rests with the judge. The judge must put his or her foot down and say, we will take the evidence of all these witnesses in one month. It is upon you to make sure that you fall within the confine of my limitations. It is doable. 
because we've been hearing election petitions for, for a period of less than six months. They're very involved. A murder trial is not as complex as we may want to portray to the public. All we need to do is to establish the act of the murder and the motive. And this, the judiciary has let us down on. So what, what can LSK do in this case? Uh, LSK before me was a little bit uh, lukewarm. Huh? I had called for the files in respect of four advocates who had been killed by the police. And it was my expectation that when we return to normalcy, we'll ask the judiciary to put their feet down and determine these matters. Not that we're directing them in the manner in which they should do the work. Let them conclude these trials. If the suspects are found guilty, then they have to be dealt with in accordance with the law. If they are uh, found innocent, then they have to be released. The way forward, this long delay in these uh, murder trials could also be explained by the fact that no death sentence has ever been enforced. So everybody who is suspected of a murder will want to beat his or her time so that they don't start serving time for life imprisonment, quote-unquote. But we, we want, insofar as Kenya still has the death penalty, for it to be enforced. As soon as somebody has exhausted all appellate mechanisms, and has been convicted of murder. Let him be hung. It's as simple as that. That is the law. It's not been changed. Do you support the death penalty? I support the rule of law. Kenya has the death penalty as a sentence for murder. So I support the death penalty because it's part of the law. Do you, in your experience, believe there are two kind of policing in Kenya? For the poor, where brutal force is used, and then for the rich, where they are given an opportunity to defend themselves in court? Not entirely. Lately, I've been involved uh, in very many cases concerning senior personalities here in Kenya, where they are arrested and held in communicado for long periods of time. Of course, they may not be as disadvantaged as the common Wanaichi, who will be beaten up, assaulted. Mm -hmm. But the level of violation is, uh, is, is across the board. In fact, policemen will mistreat, quote-unquote, a rich man or a rich woman because they feel the reason as to why that person is holding a lofty position in the society is the reason as to why they are, they are treated to be the scum of the society. So, um, this is my last question. Um, what would you like to say to Kenyans during these times, the coronavirus times? My plea to Kenyans is this. The corona pandemic is a serious pestilence that has afflicted the entire world. We may not know with exactitude the scope of infection, but I think insofar as the government has put in place mechanisms to combat this pandemic, we need to help the government. Where directives have been given insofar as personal health and communal health is concerned, let's comply. Even this curfew, much as we have challenged it in court as unconstitutional, needs to be complied with until such a time as the court has ruled otherwise. Because I believe behind everything that the government is doing, there is a noble initiative to ensure that the welfare of Kenyans is, uh, is taken care of, their safety is taken care of. Of course, there will be wayward officers and state agents who may want to take advantage of the problem. We have uh, set out a very elaborate mechanism at the Law Society of Kenya to enable us oversight this. We have issued a mobile number where you can submit your complaints. 
But over and above that, your life as a Kenyan is more important than any other rights you have. Cooperate where necessary. Don't reduce yourself to the level of that policeman who does not want to apply common sense. Do that which you can do to preserve your life. The rest we can monitor through the legal process. But if you're not there, we cannot monitor it through the legal process. And you can be out here in two ways. Either the coronavirus itself takes you out, or the police take you out in a, in a violent manner. We don't want either. Thank you very much, Mr. Harvey. Thank you for the insights. Uh, thank you for accepting.